Hello, fitness human, and welcome to Wave Talks. This is episode 12. Thank you so much for helping us get to this awesome milestone. Today, we're talking about sugar addiction. My name is Cameron. My name is Jess. I'm Dee. So today, we're talking about sugar addiction. And we can't talk about sugar addiction without talking first about what sugar is. So when we talk about sugar, we're talking about mainly glucose because that is the most common form of sugar. That's the kind that our body uses the most. It's the kind that is most prevalent throughout nature. And it is just great. It's tasty. It's all these other things. We also need to talk about sucrose, though, because sucrose is what everybody sees when they talk about sugar. It's it's the white crystalline table sugar that's actually made up of glucose and fructose. So what's fructose? Fructose is fruit sugar. It is found in many plants. It's the last kind of common sugar. Then there's other ones like maltose and lactose. Uh, there's D's favorite, which is galactose, which the is... The space sugar. The space sugar. Galactose, the space odyssey. But so like example, lactose is actually one molecule of glucose, one molecule of galactose. There are a whole bunch of these things. We don't need to get into it. We just need to really, for this conversation, know about the glucose, the fructose, and the sucrose. So what does sugar do in the body? Sugar metabolism is the process where energy that's contained in the foods that we eat is made available as fuel to fund the body's processes. Cells in our bodies, all different types of cells, so muscle cells and all the other types of cells, use that glucose to live. When we consume food, there is a corresponding rise in your blood sugar, right? So your body is breaking down the food, it's taking the glucose, out of the foods that we eat and it's putting it into the blood where it gets distributed to all of those cells. That is the corresponding rise in blood sugar. Now, when that happens, that signals the pancreas to release insulin and insulin signals those cells that it's time, hey, there's some sugar here, take the sugar, eat the sugar, it's good. And then the that's... <laughs> the, that's my Nona. Take the sugar, eat the sugar. <laughs> I'm glad we could honor her here on yeah, this podcast. I heard Italian too. <laughs> eat the sugar. The excess glucose in your body, so if you eat more sugar than the body needs, the body wants to store it. So it either stores it as glycogen or it stores it as lipids in the fat cells. Now fructose has to go through an extra step in the liver to be pre-digested and converted into glucose or fat that can then get released into the blood and then it can also get stored as glycogen or as lipids in the, the fatty tissues. So in excess, not the band, fructose can damage the liver by causing things like fatty liver disease or by putting you at increased risk for heart disease, stroke, and of course, the big one, diabetes. Another thing to remember is that since sugar is the primary source of energy for the body, not only does carbohydrate become sugar when we digest but in order for us to actually use fat and protein as fuel it also has to be converted to sugar so sugar is quite important for all body processes there's also other types of sugar that we should be talking about because beyond just the basics the sucrose the glucose and the fructose there's a whole bunch of other ones that you've heard of and jess is about to drop the bomb the one that everybody knows cam's referring to high fructose corn syrup 
which has become popular in the last 100 years amongst other types of sugar. It's no surprise that we're obsessed with sugar as a culture because like we mentioned, sugar is one of the primary things that we actually ingest. High fructose corn syrup was introduced around the 60s and 70s as an additive that actually contains about 55% fructose and 45% glucose. Since it's actually chemically made, this glucose and fructose aren't actually bonded together to make sucrose. They are unbonded, which makes it really easy to digest and immediately can be absorbed by the body. So as soon as you have this high fructose corn syrup in your body or you've ingested it, often in the form of energy drinks and pops, your body's blood sugar will spike right up as this sugar circulates in the bloodstream. They actually found that in teenagers, high fructose corn syrup will peak in blood sugar levels around 15 to 30 minutes after drinking it and will stay elevated for almost two hours after consumption. What this means is that insulin is continuously being released by the pancreas in an effort to actually store and remove that sugar from the bloodstream. This is important when considering adolescent obesity and diabetes as well as later on diabetes and that being type 2 diabetes. There's also a differentiation we want to make between refined sugar and natural sugar. Natural sugar are sugars that are naturally occurring in food. So that would be from, you know, fruit and vegetables and other types of carbohydrates that you can ingest sugar from. Refined sugar, although is originally from a natural compound like sugar beets and sugarcane, it is refined because it's processed, condensed, and generated into food. The body actually breaks down refined sugar a lot more rapidly, causing insulin to skyrocket more than it would with natural sugar. Another difference to make is that with natural sugar, you're often getting fiber as well, whereas with refined sugar, you are not necessarily getting fiber to the same degree that fiber is going to make you feel more full and will actually decrease the amount of sugar you absorb by almost 30%. It also can contribute to the microbiome of your gut and help with overall disease prevention, as well as keep you fuller for longer, like I just mentioned. So there's more positive health effects with natural sugars versus refined sugars. Can I just say one thing about refined sugars as well? It's taking out part of that digestive process, right? So by having it mechanically, chemically refined, we're getting down to the like actual drug of the sugar versus the like a component of food of sugar. So it's just something to think about. Like when you see the white crystals it kind of looks like <laughs> all the drugs on every cop show, right? Like, and so it's it's kind of the same thing. And it's going to be important in a little bit in this podcast. It's so just funny. something to think about. As soon as you said that white crystallized sugar, I got this flashback to when I was a young teen and diet pops were all the rage because they'd just come out. And I was staying with my babysitter for the day because I was a baby at 10 apparently. And uh, she had these sugar cubes um, that she'd put in her coffee and stuff. And I had diet Coke and I was obsessed with pouring the diet Coke on the sugar cube and then eating it. <laughs> and that just made me think of that. So you can picture 10 year old me pouring diet Coke on the cube because I'm like, it needs sugar. It needs sugar in it. <laughs> Let's get a little bit into sugar alternatives. So I'm sure you've heard of aspartame, Splenda, sucralose, 
right? Kind of like those drug commercials where they're pitching them to you. Sweet and low. But <laughs> Nutrasweet. <laughs> you got to use the trade names. Nutrasweet. Yeah. But these are things that we hear a lot and people will sell them to you saying that they're artificial sweeteners. They are so much sweeter than natural sugars and they're not as bad for you because they have no caloric value because our body isn't used to metabolizing them. So that comes with some other things, right? We're able to eat less of it because it's sweeter, but the rate of absorption is also less. So then we're not actually satisfying that sugar craving in the same way as we would get with a natural sugar, for example. I would like to say that my history in bodybuilding is a complete example of that result with constantly drinking diet pops and not feeling satisfied at all after them. Because it doesn't hit that same thing. Like we were talking about me and Cam, how, you know, it doesn't affect your gut. It doesn't affect that biome the same way. You're not actually processing it. So that might come with some other negative effects. Although there's not a ton of research in how artificial sweeteners can actually cause GI issues. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence from many different stories saying that people feel inflamed after artificial sweeteners. They have um, allergic reactions, other things like that. So some research says that it may affect our microbiome in a negative way and cause inflammation and reduce motility. That might be more related to the lack of fiber that's associated with the sugar. Like we mentioned, fruit has fiber and sugar you digest, yay, with Artificial sweeteners doesn't happen so much. It may also reduce enzymatic activity, which is how we break down proteins. So it may reduce protein uptake. And then there's some research that says there might be carcinogenic byproducts. But again, take that with a grain of sugar because there's still research to be done there. Another good example of a sugar alternative is stevia. So this one has become really popular in the last couple years because it's actually a natural sweetener. Stevia is a plant that comes from Brazil and Paraguay, and its active compound is quite sugary and is almost 30 to 150 times sweeter than sugar, but it has fiber associated with it, as long as it's not crazy refined like sugarcane, as an example. What we're saying here is know your sugar. Pay attention to labels. Read what's on them. What are you eating? How might it affect you? Is sugar necessary to live, though? I mean... Like we mentioned, it's everything goes into sugar almost eventually to be utilized for energy. So if we need sugar to live, then we just can eat candy all the time. That's what we're learning from this podcast. Can I have chocolate instead? Yeah, totally. As long as it's packed full of sugar. I'm good to go. I mean, since this podcast started recording, I've probably had about 20 chocolate espresso beans. So I apologize in advance for the pee, 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 pee. There's going to be a lot more of that. So yes, sugar is necessary to live. Your body is amazing and will break down pretty much everything you eat as food and turn a bunch of it into glucose. And like Jess said, even 50 to 60% of the protein you eat gets turned into glucose. So all of that stuff, all of that sugar, we need it, we want it, we love it. So yes, if it's the primary thing that you're turning into other things, it's probably necessary. But that said, eating sugar refined from other foods is not necessarily the best way to fund our body's fueling needs. There are other needs that the body has, but interestingly, glucose as an intravenous sugar solution is considered one of the safest and most effective medicines by the World Health Organization in certain cases. The trick here is that there's no digestion. It just goes directly into the veins to get right to the cells for sustenance. When you just dive into high sugar food to eat, 
you're making the body release more insulin, which affects the arteries in the body by creating inflammation within the walls of the artery, causing them to become thicker and more stiff over time. The reduced efficiency of the arteries forces the heart to have to pump harder and then can lead to all kinds of heart issues and even a higher risk of stroke. So then if we need sugar, why are we hearing all these interesting statements coming out saying that it's harmful, that it's bad for you, that it's addictive? What's going on? Or those fad diets that say no sugar, cut sugar, stop eating sugar. Sugar cleanse. Yeah, it's mainly about who is selling what. And I don't mean to be so pessimistic right off the bat with that. But when you look at these, these, you know, it used to be the TV infomercial and now it's like the Instagram uh, ad that you see. Are they the influencer? The influencer, but even the like the the promoted ads or promoted posts. Uh, is it somebody pushing keto, veganism, paleo, etc.? Is it an intuitive eating coach or a nutrition coach or a bodybuilding coach? Is it a multinational company who's got a new product that has like natural or organic somewhere in the title of the the product? It it's 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 about connecting your biases right it's it's preying on that mechanism that is very very prevalent in our society right now just the way that everybody is <laughs> selling something or trying to like influence you into a certain belief system and realistically it's about using those implicit biases when you're doing your like Facebook research or what have you, and you read this story, you know you should be healthier. You know you should eat less sugar. You know you should drink more water, right? And somebody comes along with something that says, here's how you do that easier or better. So you're already two-thirds of the way there because you need to change this aspect of your life. And then they have something that will fix that. And usually it puts you into a system or a closed loop or... Um, onto a product that you need to keep taking forever. And that's more about the like capitalist aspect of that. But really what it is, is it's that you already, like I said, have these, these strong stereotypes in your mind. That's the implicit bias. And they're just kind of connecting those dots to whatever their outcome is. And they're also preying on the all or nothing mentality, right? When people are going to look for information, they're looking for a yes or no answer a lot of the time. Because yeah, for it's, absolutes and black and white. Because it's easier to incorporate than, well, it depends. But to be honest, most of the time, the answer is, well, it depends. Yep, absolutely. Not the diapers. <laughs> Clients, if you're working with us and you have questions for us, you know that we answer with, it depends. <laughs> so one of the ways to think about this is with the idea of, Going even simpler, look at like products that say that they're natural, they're healthy, they're organic. It doesn't necessarily mean that the product is better for you because it can be organic concentrated orange juice and drinking organic concentrated orange juice is the same as eating how many oranges? I think it's like eight to 10 oranges or something crazy like that by the, by the amount of sugar that your body will actually end up digesting. Again, you as the consumer, you as the person that is being targeted, is being targeted with these these claims, these promises, these these corporate affirmations of of what comes of utilizing their systems. And 
you absolutely have to understand that it depends. It always depends. There's no one thing that works for everybody. The other thing to take into consideration is how the word sugar is used so interchangeably, right? I could say sugar and be referring to chocolate, and I could be saying sugar and referring to an apple. The next question you should always ask yourself is, what kind of sugar is the person who's delivering this information referring to? Are they referring to stop eating high fructose corn syrup? Or are they saying stop eating all sugar altogether, which would mean cutting out a huge chunk of your current diet. So make sure that you take that into consideration and always ask questions about what particulars they're trying to actually convey to you. I guess that brings up the question then, is sugar actually addictive? The main study I kept coming across was this big one done on rats where they were fed sugar on an intermittent food schedule to create situations of binging, withdrawal, and cravings. The results of the study supported the theory that intermittent access to sugar can lead to behavior and neurochemical changes like dopamine changes that resemble the effects of substance use like dependency. The study took aspects of drug use behavior and compared it to the response the rats had to sugar and it ended up hitting five of the 11 criteria laid out, including cravings, using larger amounts for longer than intended, hazardous use, tolerance, and withdrawal. They couldn't assess any of the social impairment criteria because these were rats, not people. So with studies that are done on rats, they don't factor in these social factors like income, education, access, culture, and other things that contribute to food consumption patterns and behaviors. So this brings me to another thing that came up, which is the Yale Food Addiction Scale, which does involve people and humans. So this is a tool that's a widely accepted measurement tool for studying food addiction. It was developed in 2008 and then has been like revamped and updated to its new 2.0 version that came out in 2016. And so this was to factor in the latest substance use disorder information. So this showed that most addictive foods tend to be high fat, high in refined carbs, low in protein, and low in nutrient density. But the tool also finds other relationships with food addiction qualities, including links to binge eating disorders and trauma, which is kind of worth exploring in the context of sugar addiction. So when the Yale food addiction thing linked food addiction to BMI, which we know is a flawed body measurement, close to 20% of the food addicted participants were considered obese, which is a word that this study chose, and 40% were considered underweight. So a case could be made that dieting or restricting food can increase reward sensitivity for food. So a flaw of this particular Yale food scale is that because this deals with humans, variables can't be manipulated the same way they can be in studies with rats. And then the information they collect is all based on participant perception of their own food experience. So it's all very subjective. An interesting thing about this Yale food addiction scale is that it does factor in stress. So I went through another article pulling from studies that talked about how stress affects us behaviorally and biologically, including at the molecular and cellular levels. There are links between stress and addiction risk due to the effect certain stress responses have on the body. Stress in this article refers to perception and response to harmful, threatening, or challenging events or stimuli. So especially from this, our stress responses create adaptation in the body to restore homeostasis. What this prompts me to consider 
is that if so-called addiction risk can be characterized by adaptations to stress, is it that which pushes someone to seek something that feels or tastes good or brings pleasure, or is it that the substance itself is addictive? Then is it actually about the drug or substance, or is it about the adaptations the body creates around it based on biological, physical, psychological, societal, and all kinds of other factors? Which is basically saying that food and sugar is a coping mechanism in a lot of ways. And maybe we do have a physiological response to sugar where dopamine increases, but we're also getting what drove us to that sugar in the first place, right? Was it that coping mechanism or was it that we just innately crave sugar as an addiction? Yeah, and maybe some of our stresses are food-related, body image-related, years of dieting and not realizing that you're dieting and having it so ingrained in you from just having learned it and like being conditioned to it at a young age. Like Those are real stresses which would absolutely create a reason for, having, for wanting food as a substance that will bring you relief and from that stress. Another study that I was reading, they you know gave sugar to, again, rats as well. By the way, all of these studies will be available if you want to read them as well. Yeah. Um, they actually found that rats underwent uh, sugar withdrawal, which was characterized as teeth chattering was actually how they measured it. But so you can go with through withdrawal with sugar as well. So then you have this maladaptive physiological thing that's going on, and then you might have the emotional response to it where you're drawn back to using sugar as a coping mechanism again because it makes you feel better. So that's the diet cycle, and that's where you're literally going through feast or famine, basically, right? You're going through this cycle of depriving yourself of something. If you're old school, we think about the low-fat thing and... Now we think about the low sugar thing, but where you're depriving yourself of the sugar and then you eventually get to a point where you can't take it anymore and you fall off the wagon and you go and you binge and you feel super guilty and get all this shame. And then eventually the cycle will start again because you're so tired of looking at your failed self and now you're going to go back and try to reclaim your power by going on another diet or something like that. And that's, that's that it's, it's a really gnarly cycle and it is actually encouraged in our society because that's a great way to sell things, right? Because the next answer is always just around the corner or has just come up on your feed or you've created a positive reinforcement to the same thing over again. Yeah. And then you wonder why it doesn't work. Well, and so then if we talk about dopamine, cause that is um, a big response that was explored in these, um, in this rat study, that was a factor that helped linked it, helped link it to drug use. So dopamine is involved in modulating motivational pathways in the brain that help regulate behavioral responses. Does that rat study show that restricting sugar affects dopamine response, which which then causes the dependent behavior or does it show again that sugar itself is addictive like how can we really know from these studies well again i think it comes back to that tried and true three-wave answer it depends you can only really work with your understanding of how you work so if there's something that works for you and i'm not vilifying diets here i'm not vilifying changing your habits to accommodate change in your life or uh, physicality, not at all. But if there is something that does work for you that you can stick with, great. And if eventually you have to change that because it's no longer working, then great. But putting all of the stock into the claims that are made that we see and thinking that somebody else has found the answer for you typically isn't 
going to yield the results that you want. And we've talked a lot about that in terms of the mental health aspects and the uh, potential dangers in that because of that high disappointment value of a lot of these types of things. So realistically, we have to unfortunately take that responsibility for ourselves and for our own path forward. What are some of those things that we can do? Because we're sitting here saying that we should make all these changes, but what are some of those changes that we can make? For me, I would definitely say make sure that everything is in moderation. Know what you're eating and be aware of it and make conscious choices that you think are going to be best for you and your physiology. That might be, you know, if you find that you get irritated by high sugar intake or you're inflamed after high fructose corn syrup or that your skin breaks out if you eat too much sugar, then those are maybe some potentials to reduce sugar or reduce those types of sugar. If you know that you feel more full off an orange or an apple, then select an orange or an apple instead of chocolate. These are just examples of how you can make better life choices without necessarily having an all or nothing mentality or black and white mentality. Yeah, and that kind of leads into like a big thing that has helped me is giving myself permission to satisfy those cravings when they come. Because I did spend a long time when I was doing bodybuilding, I spent a lot of time restricting myself, which made me just want to binge and eat everything in sight and everything that I couldn't have. So knowing that I can have those, uh, you know, more processed foods or high sugar foods in the house and eat them when I want, it actually lets me stay in tune with my body signals and body cues so that I just eat the amount that feels good at the time without eating so much that I don't feel good afterwards or overdo it. And so it allows me to keep a good balance where I'm also happy to get lots of veggies in and also happy to get some little bits of candy and buttercream icing in. As one does in their day. So one of the last things that I want to contribute is that we have talked a lot in our previous podcast, which you should definitely check out because this is number 12. So that means there's 11 that you got to catch up on if you've only gotten to this one so far is to support yourself through your mental health with things like journaling or meditation or self-reflection or any of these other tools and habits that you can get into so that you are starting to deal with that mental aspect of diet because if you binge when you're sad and you start mitigating that sadness you could start to change those patterns around food it's all connected crazy it's like the circle of sugar i circle's not a sugar circle is a square Sugar. (laughs) (laughs) Some things that we want you to keep in mind is that facts are facts right now, but they can change over time. We're always coming out with new research. There's always new information readily available. So make sure that whatever is true at this time, that you're still doing research, educating and elevating your knowledge in order to have the best information when it comes to what you should be eating or what might be best for you. What we understand right now is that although sugar is a simple molecule, it can be a very complex topic. We need sugar to survive as it funds most of the body processes and that some sugars are better than others depending on our goals and individual body types, shapes, metabolism. 
we've found in research that you can actually go through withdrawal and have increased dopamine release when having changes in sugar intake. Since sugar has been modified a lot over the past 100 years, it has changed the way we ingest sugar and therefore modified our behaviors around it, which in some cases may be akin to addiction. So remember, take information with a grain of sugar. Bam. Fitness humans, thanks so much for hanging out with us. We love doing this stuff for you. If you have any questions, reach out to us. You can definitely get us on social media. And please check out and subscribe to our YouTube page. And if there's anything we can help you with, we do have services that we offer that you can check out on our website, threewayfitness.com. We will see you in a couple weeks for lucky number 13. Bye. Sugar. Oh, honey, honey. You are my candy girl. And you got me wanting you. No shrimp, buttercream with sugar. Double time. Oh, honey, honey.